Please turn back to page 1018, our section from Mark chapter 12. Amongst the uh, many pursuits at which I'm completely useless is the use of a camera. Photography comes very low down in my skills. If you were to delve into the non-existent albums in the hacking household, we just have a, a big box with photographs in. We haven't even yet done our wedding album. We're thinking about doing it one of these days. We haven't round to it yet. Um, and uh, you will find some photographs where the poor person is chopped off at the knee. That's my, that's my handiwork. Or you get this extraordinary landscape where there's sea and sky and just one little sort of dot, which is probably my wife and I'm taking a close-up. You can, these are kind of my uh, photography skills. Uh, so we never bother nowadays. We depend upon other people giving us photographs and everybody taking pictures nowadays, digital cameras flashing all over the place. And uh, just the other day I was given... Uh, preaching down in Lowestoft by a, a somewhat elderly lady who assured me she was in my young people's meetings that I took at Keswick in the year 1967 and she produced the photograph of the ministry team of 1967. We were a great phalanx of men, all of us wearing these thick dog collars, how things have changed. And on the back row was, this is 40 years ago, was a very fresh-faced looking hacking it was the year before he came to Sheffield. Everything went downhill from then on. But at that moment, we looked at it. Anyway, uh, I looked at this photograph of 1967 and I just got the inspiration of how to move into what I find actually quite a difficult but challenging passage in Mark chapter 12. For in a sense, I want to do it as if I were a photographer. Now, I can't use all the language of zooming in and lenses and all the rest. But I want to take sort of a close-up and then a distant picture and we'll keep on moving in and out and I hope you'll find something new from this passage. For example, taking a long view, see this question in Mark 12, 28 onwards, see this question in the where it was all happening. Where was it happening? Chapter 11, verse 27, they were in the temple courts and there was all this religious activity going on. Please remember... There wouldn't be just a handful of them. There'd be crowds of people there. And isn't that why the, uh, the, the lawyer who asked the question talks in verse 33 about our Lord's answer being good and loving God and neighbour is far more uh, important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. You can see him going on. You can smell it happening. And in the context of that, that is this kind of question. So now zoom in a bit more. When you zoom in a bit more, then you get a picture of the man. I'm, I actually am eternally grateful the Bible was written before cameras were invented. I'm glad it's words and not pictures. But just supposing we could have moved in and looked close up at this man. I think the thing we'd have noticed was that he was absolutely genuine. He came and he asked the Lord for an answer in verse 28. It was a sincere an honest question, which had not been true of some of the other questions. And we know that from our Lord's comment about him uh, in verse 34, as well as his own comment about our Lord's answer in verse 32. Now, what makes this significant, and I hope you'll see the relevance, is that one other lawyer, and with great respect to the many lawyers here present, lawyers do love talking, that's their job, and they love to talk. And uh, uh, in contrast to another lawyer in Luke chapter 10, who asked virtually the same question. He came to Jesus and asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I submit to you, that's what lay behind this man's question. Which is the most important law? 
because he believed that that was the way to inherit eternal life. And when the, uh, the other lawyer in Luke 10 asked the question, Jesus said, oh, tell me, come on, you're a lawyer. What's written in the law? And intriguingly, the lawyer in Luke chapter 10 quotes exactly what Jesus says in verse 30. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbour as yourself. Had he thought it up for himself? Had he heard Jesus say it on this or another occasion? I don't know. But what is intriguing is that Jesus then says to him, well, okay, go and do it. And the lawyer, not wanting to do anything at all, says, who is my neighbour? And you get the story of the Good Samaritan. You see the contrast. Now, I know a number of you here tonight. Most of you I don't know. How do we come to this question tonight? Do we actually want to hear an answer that will not only intrigue us, but actually call us to action? Or do we just want to be asking questions? That was the lawyer in Luke chapter 10, his danger. Or again, we go back with our camera. And I want us to see this particular issue in the whole biblical complex of law and love. It's a great debate right through Scripture. A few weeks ago we were at Keswick, and in the second week of Keswick, Steve Braid, in his own racist style, was doing Galatians. And uh, we looked at the outrageous grace of that tremendous letter, which pushes things to the extent that you almost want to say, if it all depends upon grace, and if we can never get anywhere by good deeds, shouldn't we just go on doing lots of evil things so that God's grace will be all the more wonderful? Isn't it danger, dangerous near to antinomianism? And if you don't use that word normally, uh, is it dangerous and near to saying it doesn't matter? The law's gone. Live as you like. Now, I would submit to you that unless we sometimes think the gospel is pushing in that direction, we haven't understood the gospel. There should come a moment when we think it's almost so wonderful that we are actually saying, whatever kind of life you live, it'll be all right at the end. Oh, but it doesn't say that, does it? And always there's a balance in Scripture between grace from love and law in obedience. Let me give you a test case. When Jesus spoke to the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8, verse 48, what did he say to her? Neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Now be honest, if you'd met the woman, which would you have said to her? Of those two? Or would you have said both? There are many churches where she'd have immediately been told to go and sin no more. Who'd have looked askance on this woman. There are many churches, particularly in our age, inclusive churches, who would have said, it doesn't really matter. God loves you, it's okay. Carry on. Jesus had it beautifully poised. I don't condemn you. But I'm not suggesting you go on living as you did before. Go and sin no more. That's the balance. And when Paul picks up this great theme with our camera zooming over, in Romans chapter 13, Paul will keep on reminding us that love is the fulfilment of the law. Law is never loveless. And love is never lawless. Love does not mean live as you like. Love does not mean softness on God's part. Whatever we do, it will be alright at the end. Now, moving again before we look at our three foci, just one more. Bring in the, uh, the, the, the camera again close up. Notice how it all ends in verse 34. From then on, no one dares ask him any more 
questions. I wonder why. We've got a series that has two more questions, but it's not them asking Jesus. It's Jesus asking questions himself. No more did they ask questions. Was it because they sensed that now was a time for action? He demolished all these arguments. He'd answered all their questions. And now Jesus was moving into the moment when he would go to the cross in the supreme demonstration of love. Now look at verse 34. Jesus said to this man, you are not far from the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Is it possible that it means you're standing next door to the kingdom of God? You're actually next door to the man who is going to bring in the kingdom. It's not a matter of law abiding. It's not a matter of keeping law. I am the king and my kingdom is coming as I go to the cross of the resurrection. Now, if a bit of you says, that's a bit far-fetched, can I bring on my witness? I have a commentary by a great man called Professor Cranfield, the great commentary on Mark's gospel. And Professor Cranfield suggests that may be the meaning of verse 34. I bow to Professor Cranfield because when I was a very young man, a curate to cross in Lancashire, at a very very young age, I was taken up to Durham to speak at a University Christian Union's weekend, and I decided to speak on Mark's Gospel, and to my horror that the opening meeting was chaired by Professor Cranfield, the world expert on Mark's Gospel. Just stop and pause. Do you think any professor of theology in Britain today would ever chair a Christian Union meeting in a university? The answer is probably no, sadly. But in those days, he did. So he was near the kingdom. And it was a reminder that the kingdom was more than this lawyer understood. But now here are my three focuses or foci, whichever is right. First, here's the camera, focus on the law. What is the law he's talking about? Well, notice it was a question asked with sincerity. It was a typical question, verse 28. He'd heard other people, uh, the other answers, so he asked the question. Of all the commandments, which is the heaviest, is the meaning of the word, which is the biggest? Now, they love debating. Please remember, this man was not a lawyer of our sort. He was an ecclesiastical lawyer, a canon lawyer. And they love debating all these kind of issues in that religious hierarchy. For example, uh, there was one man called Hillel, uh, who was a a lawyer, a well-known scribe. And he was asked a question by a cynic who asked him, the question, teach me the whole law while I stand on one foot. Do you rather like that? I can't stand very long on one foot. You teach me the whole law while I stand on one foot. And Hillel's answer was intriguing. Hillel's answer was, this is the whole law. Do not do to your neighbour what you don't want your neighbour to do to you. Now, please note the difference. It's the exact opposite of love your neighbour as yourself. Oh, a lot easier. There's some truth in that. But it's a kind of, he never did anybody harm syndrome, isn't it? How many many funerals I've taken where the bereaved have said, well, he never came to church, but he never did anybody any harm, which I doubt very much. But you see, it's got nothing to do with how much good has he done. Do not do to your neighbor what you don't want your neighbor to do to you. That was Hillel's answer to this question. And this man asking the question clearly was intrigued, not just how would Jesus answer it? But I think he was implicitly asking the question, how do we get to eternal life? Well, 
Some of the contemporaries of this man, like Saul of Tarsus, found you couldn't find it that way. And this man had to get the answer. And yet, you see, I believe in the way Jesus deals with this question of the law and what it really means, he actually did believe that when a person asks sincerely, really sincerely, even though they may be asking in the wrong direction, they will find the answer. Let me give an illustration. Here's the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, desperate for religious answers. Goes off to Jerusalem, uh, can't be accepted because he's a eunuch, still desperate, gets a script of Isaiah, finds a man who jumps on his chariot who can preach, and lo and behold, he's baptised, becomes a Christian. He was sincerely seeking the wrong way, but because he was sincerely seeking it the wrong way, the right answer came in God's way. Or Lydia, the lady in Acts 16, the first converts in Europe, Lydia, as soon as she, she was a, a proselyte, she was following the Jewish way, and suddenly Paul appeared with the gospel and the Lord opened Lydia's heart. Or, I was reminded of this when I met a few days ago, Mark Jason, the son of Noel and Gloria Jason, who some of the older people remember was here on our staff for a number of years. Well, Mark Jason just going out to the Gambia, out in missionary service, it's a rather nice link, and it reminded me of India. When I was a very young clergyman, there was a very old Indian bishop came to speak to us. And he spoke about things that had happened when he was a young man. So we're pushing it back a long way. And he said, when the gospel first came to their part of India, the good Hindus, that is those who were religious and sincere and meant business, when the gospel came, they said, this is what we want. This is what we've been looking for. The bad Hindus, the one who did the religion but didn't take it seriously, they didn't want the gospel. And the very real sense in which this man asking a question with sincerity finds the answer not the way he expected. And if you're seeking sincerely, I want to tell you, really, you will find. But it may be a surprise when you do find. First of all, then, it was asked with sincerity. Now, secondly, it was answered with clarity. This law question uh, from the lawyer. How does our Lord answer the question? He answers the question by quoting together Deuteronomy 6, 4 onwards, which we read, and Leviticus 19, 18. Loving God, loving our neighbour as ourself. Now, it may be that our Lord was the first one to link those two together, but we can't be sure. But, of course, they do go together. In 1 John, when John is writing his letter, John says that if we say that we love God, who, if we say we love God, but we don't love our brother whom we have seen, how can we? If we say we love God and we don't love our brother, anybody who says that, he is a liar. I remember that verse well. As a little lad, I once uh, dared to tell my mother she was a liar. So I got cluttered. You do not use words like that, said my mother. I said it's in the Bible, so it's all right. So I got cluttered again, second time. Right, right. But if we say, I do love God, but I don't love my brother, I'm, to the Bible, I'm lying. Anybody can say he loves God. God isn't around to say whether he believes you or not. But if you don't love your brother, whom you've seen, how can you? And so he brings them together. And do you see how bringing them together matters? On the one hand, there are lots of people who say and imply that the law, what God wants, is that we just are good to other people. Many people I meet, decent non-Christians, think that's all it's about. And so long as you're decent with your neighbour, that's fine. God wants no more. 
But of course he does. The first commandment is about God. We shall love him. And if we don't love him, then the rest is not enough. On the other hand, of course, there are those who are more religiously inclined who may not say it, but the way they actually act suggests that God is deeply concerned about the laws of the church, about the traditions of the church, about our religion, religious activity, but not too bothered about the way we live. I've said it often to this pulpit, but it's hard to get across. In the history of mankind, religion is more often linked with immorality than morality. We often forget that. We assume religion and morality, oh, not at all, not in the history of mankind. Religion, on the whole, you behave as you like and even have your immorality with your religion. God doesn't bother so long as you do the right religious things. And so, God, our Lord then answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, love your neighbour as yourself. And if you stop and think that this demand of Jesus, this clear statement of Jesus on the law, leaves every one of us a sinner. I read the Ten Commandments, and even there I know I'm a sinner, but when I hear the two commandments, love God with all you've got, and love your neighbour as yourself, I'm on my knees and confess, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I'm not sure I should have done it. Just this afternoon, I got an hour spare, and I couldn't stand listening to the cricket anymore. I can't really stand the prospect of losing yet again. So I wasn't listening to cricket. Uh, so I decided a much better pursuit. I started reading again Richard Baxter's The Reformed Pastor. Uh, you must admit, a much better thing to be doing than listening to cricket on a Sunday afternoon. The only thing about the Reformed Pastor, it, it, it's all about the opening bit about taking heed to yourselves. So it is a solemn word as I come to the pulpit tonight. And it's a solemn reminder to every Christian, not just to pastors, that when we dare to take on our lips the law of God, we soon find ourselves, if we're honest, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Focus on the law. Now, secondly, focus on the Lord. And the Lord brings a double demand, and there's a double verdict. The double demand is in the two commands. The first one in Deuteronomy 6.4, here in verse 29, is what they call the Shema, which every Jewish child learnt off by heart. The Lord is one, the Lord our God is one. Love him with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Please note two things. He's one. There's only one God. And therefore, because he's one, he demands this of all mankind, humankind, whatever religion they may have, there is only one God. Secondly, he is the Lord, your God. That special covenant love with the people of God. And from them, you see, he wants not just an awe and a belief, but a love. Now, friends, can you say with any degree of honesty that you've moved from being able to say, as you said in the creed, and said it with sincerity, I hope, I believe. We said tonight, we believe, but you could say, I believe. To moving and saying, I love. It's one thing to believe. It's one thing to have a sense of awe. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. The whole, the totality of your being. And if I do that, then it lifts my Sunday worship to a new dimension and it affects the whole way I live. Love him with all that I've got. If you love me, 
Keep my commands. Then you see, you move into, into Leviticus 19, which is the other demand, to love our neighbour as ourselves. And if, if you read Leviticus 19, Leviticus was the last book I preached on in my 29 years. See, I ducked it for 27 and a half years, and eventually I thought I must have a go at Leviticus. Not exactly the book I, is my favourite, but I found some treasures in Leviticus. When some years ago I was preaching in the Cameroon to the Wycliffe Bible translators, when they started translating their Old Testament, what was the first book they translated? Leviticus. Because you see, they knew all about sacrifice. This was something they understood. So they homed in immediately on that. But never mind. Leviticus 19 is a chapter which keeps on saying, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Therefore, it gives some very practical commands, which sum up and love your neighbours yourself. If you read through those commands, you'd be very intrigued how relevant they are. It talks about paying good wages, talks about caring for the deaf and the blind. My mind goes back to that day when I took a mission at Leicester University and uh, people made response and coming out. I've met people recently who became Christians then and one blind lass came forward. Very moving, I shall always remember it. And she said to me, you know, the reason I'm coming forward to accept this booklet tonight, it wasn't a booklet, it was no good to her, of course, because she couldn't read it, but I found we found uh, something else. She came forward and said, the reason I'm here tonight is because of these two, and there were two lasses stood near her. You see, we're in the same hall of residence. And lots of people in our hall of residence say to me, if we can be of help, do let us know. But you're independent when you're blind, so I didn't. But these two were different. They thought beforehand what they could do. They were imaginative. They were always ready to make the offer. And I thought, now, why are they different from the rest? And they invited me to come to this meeting. Ah, I twigged it. They were Christians. And because these two lasses as Christians had cared thoughtfully, imaginatively for a blind neighbour, that blind neighbour responded to the gospel. It wasn't my preaching. I was just the catalyst by which it all came to a head. It was the care. And that comes in Leviticus 19. It's also there about being just in actions in court, not having favoritism, marital purity, not dabbling in the occult, keeping the Sabbath. And one bit I like as I get older, it says in Leviticus 19, rise in the presence of the aged. Do you like that bit? That's a nice bit. Uh, All that's all part and parcel of loving your neighbour as myself. And intriguingly, when the, look, the other lawyer in Luke 10 was challenged by loving your neighbour yourself, what did he say? Who is my neighbour? Clever question from a lawyer. You see, there are two easy answers to that question. One is everybody is my neighbour. do not about you. I love everybody very happily. I have no problem with everybody. Everybody is nobody. I can love everybody very happily. And I can love certain people very close to me very happily. So how did our Lord answer his question, who is my neighbour? He told the chatty story about the Good Samaritan. And he turned the story round. You see, the priest and the Levite, when they met that man by the roadside, battered. They'd never met him before in their life. He wasn't a neighbour in any sense normally. Fellow Israelite, that's all. But they could have been neighbour to him. And the Samaritan became neighbour to a man he'd never met and who would probably have cursed God for allowing a Samaritan to touch him. And the question then became not who is my neighbour, to whom can I be neighbour? That's a very different 
question. So the challenge comes to us. Here's the double demand. Love God, love my neighbor. Doesn't that make you feel I haven't got there yet? Then there's a double verdict, a double demand, a double verdict. Now I have to confess, I looked up some of my notes. I have notes of sermons of bygone age. And I preached on this passage in the year 1981. For those who know the important things, that was the Botham year. You remember the Botham year? No, no, no. The both, I remember vividly because I, I preparing a sermon one Sunday afternoon in, 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 the, in the vestry there and I was going out to go home to get ready to have a cup of tea and come back to the evening service and a gentleman across the road was do, mending his car and as I came out he said, oh vicar, you don't believe in Sunday sport, do you? I said, no, no, not really. So you don't want to know how England have gone on this afternoon, do you? <laughs> well, I said, well, if it's happening, I suppose I ought to know and that was the great victory of both of them, 1981. Anyway, my sermon of 1981... On this theme, I thought the lawyer, verse 32, was pedantic and patronizing. I wish to tell you I have changed my mind. But you see, at first it seems a bit pedantic and patronizing. Well done, teacher. You've all met them. The bishop says something. Yes, my lord, I agree entirely with you. They always do. Uh, It's the sort of thing that some people do. Well, I think he wasn't pedantic and patronizing. But I do wonder whether he was actually prepared to do anything about it. And then, of course, that's his verdict on Jesus. Then comes the Lord's verdict on him in verse 34. When he saw he'd answered wisely, he said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Well, allowing for Cranfield's comment about being near the kingdom of God, isn't it also saying that by his response, he demonstrated a spirit that could easily respond But please remember, not far is not the same as being there. In that photograph of 1967, preachers at Keswick, it's a classic. Uh, There is one gentleman who didn't wear a dog collar, one clergyman who dared to stand out from the rest with his collar and tie on, a Baptist minister called Alan Redpath, a man of a bygone age, a great preaching gentleman. He and I were good mates. We both ministered in Edinburgh together. And Alan Redpath loved to tell the story of his famous not far. You probably haven't heard it, so it is. Alan Redpath played rugby for Northumberland. And there came the moment when he had to take the final kick. They got a try. I don't understand rugby. It's the wrong shape of ball. But please don't mention football to me today. I'm not in the right mood. But the, the wrong ball. And he got the wrong ball. He got, he got it there, the wrong shape of ball, ready to kick. And he knew if he got that kick in, Northumberland won. If it missed, they lost. And he built up, as a good preacher does, how he kicked. You know, he ran up, he threw his grass in the air to see which way the wind was blowing. He did his balancing act like they all do, take ages to get round to it. It didn't matter about time because this was the last kick of the game. And off he went and kicked and the ball went. And it hit the, the post and bounced back. So near... And yet, so far, they'd lost. And I can still see Alan Redpath leaning over. Isn't it possible you might be so near? And yet, so far? And there may be some folk here who've been coming a long time. You're near, but you're far. My last point, my last focus. Focus on law. Focus on the Lord. Focus on love. I find here two thoughts that I think sum it all up. 
There's a seeker found wanting. Oddly enough, it's a strange thing. I'm already preparing for next Sunday morning. I'm preaching next Sunday morning here on Daniel 4 and 5. And Daniel 5 is Belshazzar, the great Belshazzar's feast. The writing on the wall. Did you know that came in Scripture? The writing on the wall. Uh, And the writing was, you are weighed in the balance and found wanting. And Belshazzar was a terrible, terrible character. Found wanting by a thousand miles. But may I suggest to you that this lawyer was a seeker found wanting. That by the Lord, Jesus proclaimed him, he wasn't there. He wasn't far, but he wasn't there. Read church history, Martin Luther, desperate to find peace with God, couldn't find it, till he discovered Romans and the whole doctrine of God's grace in Jesus. John Wesley doing praying far more in his unregenerate life than I ever prayed in my regenerate life. And yet not there, till he heard his heart was strangely warmed when he heard, read Luther's comment on Galatians, on Romans, and he came to life. It's a story, you see, of we've got to get to that place, religious people, where we accept the fact that nothing in my hand I bring. I do not earn it. There is no law that can get me there. I have to accept that I am a seeker, will always be found wanting till I dare hold out an empty hand. Sometimes, I haven't done it obviously recently, but sometimes when I was doing a guest service, I would use the illustration of communion as an illustration of how you respond to the gospel. I did it one day in Edinburgh when the Bishop of Edinburgh decided to come to our church to hear how you run guest services. That was rather nice of him. He didn't know how to run a guest service, so he came. He said, I'll come anonymously, Philip. I'll sit in the back row. So he sat in the back row anonymously with his purple stock on. I know you're less anonymous than that. I have no idea. But bishops are wedded to their purple stock. So he sat on the back row. Uh, and he was very, very touched that I used the sacrament as an, a way of expressing how you respond to the gospel. I said, I didn't do, I didn't do a few, Bishop. I always do that. How do you take communion? I was at Luther Bridge this morning, presiding at communion. You come out, you kneel, you hold an empty hand, and you take. And then you give back to the Lord. But you come not saying, this is my good deed. This is how I've kept the law. This is my love. No, I accept your love. I don't deserve it. I come. But if there's a seeker found wanting, can I just suggest very simply, for most of us as Christians, we're not seekers in that sense, we've found. But sometimes there are servants who are found wanting. Do remember, the Bible insists that now, we who are born again, who are in the Spirit, Romans 8, 4, can fulfill the requirements of the law. The Spirit is given to us and to enable us to walk in God's way. So the law still reminds a guide. And all too often, we fail. We move from not far to acknowledging we're not there and then we find new life and there's a not now because we're different. But sadly in our lives it's not always. Failure in love should make us ready to respond to the force of love in Jesus and then we live in the freedom of love. Galatians 5.13 We're free not to serve ourselves but in love to serve one another and then one day to the fullness of heaven, one day we shall find love in all its fullness. Not till then, but don't you see, for so many Christians we're found wanting, we don't express that love to God and that love to our neighbour as ourselves. In a moment, we shall sing one of the great Charles West's great hymns about love divine. 
And it ends with a picture of being changed from glory into glory. There's a lovely glory about the first love. When I first recognise that I'm not there and I need to say yes to Jesus and I hold out an empty hand, but, and I'm never, I shouldn't lose that first love. It's so important. The Ephesian church is rebuked for losing its first love. But then there's a wonderful mature love as we grow. And one day, all the glory and the wonder of the final love in heaven. And that's our final destination. Uh, as you, some of you know, that this Church, Margaret and I have moved twice since we uh, retired. We moved from the Vicarage, where Paul is enjoying himself now, I hope. We moved to Stannington, and we had four years there, and then we moved back into, uh, back into Fullwood. And uh, the same firm moved us both times. The same two people uh, led, moved us both occasions. At the end of the second move, I, I said to the two gentlemen, thank you very much, you've done it so very well, we shan't be needing your services anymore. Uh, our next move is to heaven. And the chap said rather nicely, we don't do removals there, sir, which I thought was rather... <laughs> showed great, great. There are some wonderful men around. Well, they don't do removals there, and nobody else does removals there, but God's love moves there. Now, a final confession. It has not happened for years. I actually prepared a sermon for tonight and tore it up and started again. I haven't done that. I cannot remember when I last did that. Now, it may be somebody that I wished I hadn't torn it up and got the original. It might have been better. But I do, I do hope, perhaps, there's somebody here for whom this message was meant to be preached, specially. And if so, I do hope you don't just say, hmm, that's lovely. How about the response you know you've got to make? Holding out an empty hand to accept that love? Asking God to renew you in love for him? Things that we know are blurring the image of love in our hearts? I don't know. But if I was meant to change my sermon, and I find that difficult to do, but I had to do it, maybe, maybe it was for you. A prayer. Let's pray.